Good evening and welcome to our Thursday night class. Tonight is Thursday night, October 28th, 2021, and I am thrilled to be with you tonight to be able to study together. This is the fourth of a four-part series on Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and with tonight's presentation, we will complete this subject for now. It's not a lot more to discuss, but for now. And then next week, we will go back to the weekly Torah portion. There is a famous prophecy that God gave to the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel. We actually read this as the Haftorah on Pesach, on Passover. God placed his hand on me and took me in a whirlwind and placed me in the midst of a valley. The Himalaya at Samos and the valley was filled with bones. And God said to me, God said to me, prophesize what's going to happen with these bones. And said to them, these dry bones, listen to the word of God. Behold, God tells the prophet to prophesy about these bones. Behold, I will bring my spirit and you will come back to life. And I said as God instructed me to these bones. And there was a great wind and the bones came back to life. And they stood up on their feet. A great and mighty army stood alive once again. And God said to me, You see all these dry bones? Called Beis Yisrael Hema. This represents the Jewish people. The people were saying, This was at the time of the destruction of the first Beis Amigdash that our bones have dried up. We have no hope. We have no future. Everything is over. The temple is destroyed. The people are in exile. It's over. Therefore, prophet Yechezkel, I want you to prophesy and say to these bones, come our Shem Elikim. Hineani poteach es kivrosechem, 
Behold, I will open up your graves. And I will take you out of your graves. And I will bring you to the land of Israel. You think that you have died. You think that Jewish history is over. You think that it is gone. That everything is futile. You've given up hope. Don't give up hope. Because I, God, will bring the dead back to life. A powerful, powerful prophecy. And this prophecy operates as a dramatic and powerful metaphor on so many levels that we see with our eyes coming true today. In our time, this is a metaphor, an expression of Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, coming alive after being considered dead during the Holocaust. And after the Holocaust, Am Yisrael has risen from the ashes and come back to life stronger, more numerous than ever. This is a dramatic expression of what we see in Eretz Yisrael today, the land of Israel flowering and flourishing after centuries of lying desolate. Anyone who looked at it for 1,800 years would have thought, it's dead. There's no more life there. Certainly no more Jewish life there. And yet we see today the flowering, the flourishing of the land of Israel. It has come back to life from dead bones. We see the reinstitution of the modern state of Israel. Jewish sovereignty in Israel after an absence of 1,800 years, really more than that because there was not actual independent Jewish sovereignty even at the end of the Second Temple period. But let's just, let's just make it more simple. But it was gone. Jewish sovereignty in Israel was gone. It was dead. Who would have predicted except for God giving a prophecy through a prophet who would have predicted it would come back to life? And we have, we see, we enjoy, we benefit, we struggle with. Medinat Israel, the state of Israel. On so many levels, we see Yechezkel's prophecy coming true before our eyes. And it is also true. It is also an expression of the process that applies to the mitzvos of the Torah, to the commandments. Let me explain. After the destruction of the Second Temple and the exile of the Jewish people, a huge portion of the commandments of the Torah, we are unable to practice them. All the laws, the commandments that relate to the Temple, to sacrifices, all of the agricultural laws that relate to growing crops in Israel, we're not there. 
They don't apply to us. All of the national mitzvot in the Torah, how to run a government, what kind of social policy to have, how to organize society, how to build cities, how to care for those in need, how to police, how to defend ourselves. All of these national mitzvot, which are included in the 613 commandments in the Torah, all that whole section is was no longer relevant to us. It was no longer applicable because we did not have a country. We did not have a society that we could run. For almost 2,000 years, our view of Judaism has been reduced from a comprehensive blueprint for society that interacts with and elevates every area of life reduced to a religion. We observe Shabbat. We keep kosher. We observe the holidays. We give tzedakah. These are very, very important things. But of the 613 commandments in the Torah, approximately only one-third of them can be practiced today. Two-thirds of the Torah have been missing for almost 2,000 years. Now, of course, when I say missing, I only mean in practical observance. The mitzvahs, of course, still exist. Learning about the 613 commandments, of course, still applies. It's part of Torah. The concepts and ideas involved with those areas of Torah are still relevant as all of Torah is interwoven so that in fact, and we've discussed this in different ways before, certain concepts relating to the sacrifices are applicable in certain other areas of life, etc., etc. But we are now in a period of history where Yechezkel's prophecy is coming true for mitzvos of the Torah. Mitzvos that for almost 2,000 years were not practically applicable in our day. We merit seeing them come back to life like dry dead bones being brought back to life. There are many such examples. But the example that I want to discuss with you this evening, of course, is Shemitah, the sabbatical year. And we discussed part of the details earlier in the 1880s. For the first time in centuries, there was a Jewish community in Israel asking practical questions about how to observe Shemitah. That had not been done for almost 1,800 years. In the 1940s and the 1950s, Rabbi Avram Karelitz, known as the Chazonish, was one of the greatest Torah leaders and halachic authorities in the land of Israel. He lived in Bnei Brak, near Tel Aviv. And he was among those 
who provided practical advice to farmers. During the Shemitah, what kind of pruning are you allowed to do? What kind of pruning are you not allowed to do? What kind of plowing is permitted? What kind of plowing is not? You can fertilize like this. You're not allowed to fertilize like that. He later wrote that as a young man, when he was still in Europe, learning in yeshiva, he learned the Mishnah, he learned the Talmud, he learned all the sources the classical sources about the laws of Shemitah, of the seven, the sabbatical year, the, the agricultural release of the land. He learned about them with no practical reality because they had not been actually practiced, as I said, for 1,800 years, over 1,800 years. At that point, he was learning about it, and it was purely theoretical. He wrote that he never dreamt that he would one day merit seeing the day when it would be applied in real life. But it happened. He moved to Israel and he did it. He was one of those, one of the leaders who took that theoretical knowledge that he had gained as a student in, in, in Europe and he applied it practically. From his theoretical learning, he became an expert in farming techniques and he could advise farmers on what they could do and what they could not do during the Shemitah. He saw the mitzvah come back to life. And it's an incredible thing that in our day, in our era, Shemitah has come back to life from being dead for 1,800 years. Okay, it's not back to life completely. We discussed before, it's a complicated subject. How does it apply today? Do we need loopholes? Okay, it's complicated. But it is reawakened. It is resurrected like Yechezkel's dried bones. People in Israel today, right now in Israel today, are studying and practicing rules. For example, how do I water the plants that are on my marpeset, on my balcony? And, and what are the rules that apply to that? Those are rules that had not had practical application in 2,000 years. And today in Israel, people are asking those questions, figuring out those answers, and applying them. The prophecy of Ezekiel's bones has come true before our eyes with the laws of Shemitah. Not only that, but in Israel today, there is a vast and varied effort to make more widely applicable the spirit of the laws of Shemitah. And this is on the part of religious Jews and on the part of secular Israelis who find this subject meaningful for today's society. Julian Sinclair, 
is the vice president of a high-tech firm in Israel. And he wrote, <clears throat> People are thinking, this is just too good to remain in the area of arcane halachic arguments. The values here are really important for any modern society. And so firms, mostly high-tech firms in Israel and in other places, but especially in Israel, are promoting practices to fulfill the spirit of Shemitah this year. For example, a year without exorbitant bonuses. The money can be directed to social causes. The spirit of the law of Shemitah of equalizing wealth. Email only works during business hours. Wow, could you imagine that? If an email is received out of hours, a message will be returned explaining the policy, limiting our work, providing a better balance between work and the rest of our lives. Hundreds of workers in high tech have enrolled in a special Shemitah program. Again, religious and secular Jews. A special Shemitah program where they spend, at no cost to themselves, a half day each week studying at Hebrew University. Whatever they want. They could study Torah. They could study any other subject. But again, this idea that we take from Shemitah about spending more time in the spiritual or at least in the intellectual, balancing the constant work of a farmer with other areas of life. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who are doing this today in Israel. There is an amazing program going on for Tens of thousands of families in Israel this year. Debt forgiveness. This is a partnership between the Ministry of Welfare and private organizations that provides for families or individuals who are in need and in debt. Debt forgiveness in exchange for their agreement to take counseling on budgeting, how to be able to get out of debt, how to be able to return to a normative debt-free life. So they provide job training and counseling and in exchange for that, debt forgiveness. Borrowing from the ideas of Shemitah. There's an incredible initiative promulgated by Rabbi Yosef Rimon, who advocates for people across the country to take an hour a week and offer a service to another person. Remember, what I have is not mine. I'm a steward but it belongs to God. That's true about my money, my possessions. Rav Rimon says that's true also about my abilities. 
And just like whatever grows in the fields on its own must be shared equally, my talents, my abilities should also be shared. Spend a time a week, an hour a week, sharing your talent, your expertise with someone else who could benefit from it. Shemitah today is alive in Israel and around the world. It is vibrant. It is meaningful. Yechezkel's prophecy is coming true for Shemitah even if not completely, but to a significant extent. And there is much that we can gain from Shemitah, even if we are not farmers, even if we are not in Israel. So allow me to share with you an essay by Dr. Tzachi Fried. Now, Dr. Fried is a psychologist in Israel, and his story is about Israel, but it has a profound relevance to every one of us. Okay, so Dr. Fried is a psychologist in Israel. COVID came. All right, so now he's at home. Work has dried up, at least for at the beginning. So what's he going to do? People need to fill their time. All right, sour bread dough, remember that. <clears throat> So Dr. Fried decided he was going to create a routine in his life and stay busy with his garden. And over the course of the year, first year and a half of Shemitah, uh, of, of COVID, he managed to transform what was a patch of hard dirt into a vibrant, colorful, beautiful oasis. And it was a lot of work. Stones had to be moved, building terraces and pathways, digging holes, irrigation pipes, trees, bushes, flowers. And then once it was done, it took constant work to maintain it, to shape it, to keep it organized, pruning it, weeding it. It was a labor of love, an unending labor of love. And then in the middle of this past summer, he realized, oh my goodness, Shemitah is about to start. And he started to have anxiety. He started to panic. First of all, I've got to finish everything before the Shemitah starts because I'm not allowed to do any of this work. Once it's Rosh Hashanah, once the Shemitah year starts, it's all prohibited. And then what's going to happen to my garden for an entire year if I don't do anything to it? I can't weed it. I can't fertilize it. I can't water it. What's going to happen? All the work that I put in over the last year and a half. And it, it made it, it, he started to go crazy over this. Dr. Fried works in a psychology clinic and the therapy that they provide is based on a theory called DBT. And what it means is it's the dialectic of two opposites. In other words, there is a contradiction or a dialectic 
and it's necessary to integrate the two contradictory sides. For example, there's a dialectic between the doing mind and the being mind. The doing mind is when we're productive, we're industrious, we're accomplishing, we're making, we're creating, we're achieving, we're making progress. That's the doing mind. Now, there is such a thing as too much doing mind. It robs us of the opportunity to experience and enjoy what we have done. By contrast, there is the being mind where we're not doing anything, but we're simply existing. We're experiencing. The being mind is necessary for us to be able to relax, to enjoy, to connect. And the problem is, sometimes we get stuck at either extreme. Because if we get stuck in the being mind, we're just floating through life aimlessly. We may make plans but not follow through. Alternatively, if we get stuck in the doing mind, we're planning, we're organizing, but we don't give our chance the opportunity to experience. So his therapy that he offers to his patients is the optimal approach, is the dialectic to fully embrace both sides of the contradiction, to move effectively from one to the other. Because if not for the opportunity to be, what's the purpose of doing? And if we are only doing, we'll never have the opportunity just to be. So what we have to do is move seamlessly from doing to being and back. And so he applied this therapy to himself. And he realized that for the previous year and a half of COVID, he had been engaged in doing in building and creating and in, in planting and watering and making this garden. And now, as Rosh Hashanah approached and the Shemitah year approached, he needed to shift. He needed to shift from doing to being for an entire year. He had to allow himself the experience of being in the garden without thinking about what needed to be done. And it will be okay. There will be no catastrophe. There will be no failure. It will be a year of peace and appreciation for what is and an opportunity to enjoy it without thinking about anything else. Now, this is a precise analogy for Shabbos and weekdays. And that's the sense in which Shemitah is a year of Shabbos. During the six days of the week, we're doing. On Shabbos, 
we stop doing and we are being. We're able to reflect on and appreciate what we did during those earlier six days. If we get stuck in any one of them, we're going to miss out. We need the balance. We need the balance every week. And we need the balance every seven years. Dr. Freed writes, he has started to find himself thinking, <clears throat> in what other areas of my life do I need a Shemitah? Where might I and my family benefit from my doing less and experiencing more? Where else am I getting stuck rather than living dialectically? Recently, I was speaking to a man whose father had recently passed away. And this man was very close with his father. And especially in his father's last weeks and days, he spent an enormous amount of time with him. And for years and years, they had done things together. They had gone places together. But in those last weeks and days, he told me that they were mostly sitting together or walking together, no activity, no words, just basking in the relationship itself just basking in the feeling of loving each other itself, just basking in the being of their relationship, which required no actions and no words. He told me it was one of the most powerful experiences in his life. Just being, not doing. And so perhaps this year, we can try to allow ourselves to balance doing and being, to move seamlessly from one to the other, to be able to accomplish but also to be able to appreciate and reflect. This is an opportunity for growth for all of us, not just for this year, but to try to make corrections for our lives going forward even after this year. This is an opportunity that Shemitah has for every single one of us. <clears throat> And there are further spiritual and attitudinal benefits of Shemitah that are available to every single one of us. Rav Schneer Zalman of Ladi wrote that during a Shemitah year, a light shines into our world from beyond creation and all human beings are transformed into equals in the face of this transcendent light. Let's spend this year appreciating the spirituality of that transcendent light that 
informs us that we are all equals before God. Rabbi Micha Odenheimer writes, Every seven years we are reminded that in a deep sense the earth belongs to everyone equally. How many areas of life, in how many subjects, is this concept so applicable in our society right here, right now? And finally, something that is so important for us to absorb Because after all, you may ask, won't I be less happy giving up earning from my farm for a whole year? Won't I be less happy not receiving back money that I lent if the debt was canceled by the end of the Shemitah? Well, I guess it depends on how much you spend. Jackie Mason once said, I have enough money to last me the rest of my life unless I buy something. But here's the truth. And it is at the heart of Shemitah. And according to Rabbi David Wolpe, it is one of the deepest truths Judaism teaches. Stuff is inadequate. No explanation of life that sees the world as things alone can capture the marvel of this created world. And because of that, having more will not make you happier. I know we all think it will. I also think it will, but I'm wrong. It will not and having less will not make you less happy. Because ultimately, what we have and don't have is not a major part of our quality of life. This year is an opportunity to change your mind about how you view what you have and what you share and how you pursue what will make you happy. This is a year to think about how to repair the earth, how to provide capital and resources to the world's poor, and how to understand rest as a constructive and spiritual enterprise. Because here's another truth. Each of us will ultimately pass from this world. We cannot question this. The question to ask, though, is, what did I do with my life to make it meaningful? Shemitah is an opportunity to improve the meaningfulness of our lives by focusing on God's underlying ownership of the world and everything in it, and by focusing on our responsibility to treat others equally. Remember, stuff is inadequate. I cannot express this as powerfully 
as it is expressed in this song, which encapsulates this message of Shemitah and with which we will conclude this series. The song is Little Room by the band White Stripes. My friends, thank you very much for joining. It has been a great pleasure for me to share this with you. There will be more to discuss about Shemitah during the coming year, but that will conclude this series. I want to wish every one of you a wonderful evening, a great Shabbos, and I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.